Well, thankfully, we've hit all the we've hit all the easy stuff so far. So from here, it's all it just gets even easier, or so it seems. Good morning. We have reevaluated hell. We have reevaluated eternal conscious torment, not in any way that would be pleasing to those of the eternal conscious torment lean, um, but that's okay. Not in any. Not in any. Um, I see no great need to please that particular faction because I think the theology is probably not good. And I made that pretty bold statement last week that I just simply, uh, through, through the scriptures, I think we demonstrate that there's definitely another way of consideration. However, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't make a slide for this. I should have. If there, there are so many books on the topics of what we're on the talk of, topic of what we're talking about from every perspective. One simple book, if I have not already recommended it to you, if you want to further your studies on the idea of eternal conscious punishment, there is a book by a theologian named Alan Gomez, G-O-M-E-S, Alan Gomez, 40 Questions on Heaven and Hell. And he will give you the the he will give you the scriptural basis for that way of thinking. Because, you know, as I've said before, the Bible contains a lot of truth. The problem, it's all truth. The problem is sometimes determining what is the truth based on separation from your, your dogmatism or your denomination or your set ways of thinking. And that can only happen when Messiah returns. Will we get the full picture of no longer seeing through the glass dimly? but instead have it fully realized, as Paul says. We've considered, though, that eternal punishment and hell are real things. That, I don't think, is up for debate. Consideration of annihilation as a punishment, contrary to some other ways of thinking. And we reintroduced a, a look at soul immortality, that all are given the chance to meet the condition to merit immortality, but it is not a God-given right. You accept certain conditions, which therefore God rewards you with eternal life. And God can indeed destroy anything he wants to destroy, including a human soul. That is the conditional perspective we talked about. Now, that would certainly meet with the approval of an author of another book that I will recommend to you called The Fire That Consumes, about 450 pages by a conditionalist named Edward Fudge. It's sort of the Bible of conditionalist thought. The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge. I love the last name. I wish my name were Fudge. But every time I said it, I'd be hungry for Fudge. So I wouldn't want that, really. But, but that's not the whole story. There are, there are, there's a much, much, much bigger, broader way of thinking about this. But, but one of the last areas that I'm going to talk about in this series is this last little camp. And it's not really cut and dried, and it takes some time to talk about it. But as an introduction, I'm going to quote to you St. Isaac of Nineveh, 7th century. Listen, it is not the way of the compassionate maker to create rational beings in order to deliver them over mercilessly to unending affliction and punishment for things which he knew even before they were fashioned, aware how they would turn out when he created them, and whom nonetheless he created. St. Isaac of Nineveh, meet the universalist. 
universal restoration theology. It is easy to dismiss this. After 2,000 years of the Jesus that most of us have been sold or told or shown, and all of the, uh, the, the attached theology, which we've discussed over the last couple of months, it's very easy to, dis, to, to totally dismiss the idea of universal salvation, of God operating on a bigger scale than we have previously imagined, which says basically this, God loves everyone and desires that all would be saved. And therefore, though there will be some cleansing, even some type of punishment, discomfort, and generally speaking, bad stuff to deal with after death, God will save everyone because he loves everyone. To which the majority of anyone listening to this or anyone in Protestant thinking or a lot of other thinking would say, well, what they would say is because it's appropriate for the series, hell no, right? Or hell yes, meaning no, they've got to go to hell. And if you don't believe the way that I have been taught to believe, you are going to hell. God is not going to save everyone. There must be punishment. It cannot be. I don't believe it. Well, I'm not suggesting that you believe it. I'm not peddling it telling you about it, okay? Because you do need to understand something. You need to understand that for the good part of the early church's history, and even beyond, but especially let's look at the first part of church history because it's important, not uh, universalism was a prevalent way of thinking. Listen to these little tidbits, Okay. Not a writer among those who described the heresies of the first 300 years intimates that universalism was a heresy. Not one writer writing in the first 300 years of the church calls universalism a heresy. Not a single creed for 500 years expresses any idea contrary to universal restoration or in favor of endless punishment. 500 years of creeds. With the exception of the arguments of Augustine, who lived in 420 roughly, or died in 420, there's not an argument known to have been framed against universalism for at least four. 400 years after Messiah. As late as A.D. 400, Jerome says, most people, and Augustine, very, very many, quam plurimi in Latin, which means a vast majority, they say a vast majority believed in universalism. 400 A.D., the first defense of Christianity against infidelity was a book called, a writing called Origin Against Celsus. Celsus was a pagan philosopher who was arguing with the Christian philosopher and theologian Origen. And his accusation was, your God stinks. He burns people up in fire, he said to Origen. Origen's response was, God's fire is curative. He is a consuming fire because he consumes the sin and not the sinner. That was the first apologetic writing toward a pagan in Christian history. Even Augustine, 
Even Augustine, who I said, you know, didn't really like this idea very much, even Augustine began his way of thinking in some form of salvation for all. The final editor of the Nicene Creed was a monk named Gregory of Nyssa. Listen, the editor of the Nicene Creed was a staunch universalist. Speaking of creeds, it was not until the 6th century, the Athanasian Creed, that the idea of fiery torment after death made its appearance in creedal form. 6th century, we see a departure toward eternal conscious punishment from a very prevalent idea in universal restoration of God's people. And to be very clear, I want to make this point right away. Who knows the Unitarian Universalist Church? Anyone ever heard of the Unitarian Universalist Church? That's not what we're talking about. That, that's not what this is. The Unitarian Universalist Church is a liberal religion characterized by a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, drawing from humanism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Taoism, syncretism, omnism, neo-paganism, atheism, atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism. I don't even know what it means. Dana, you can help me later. Pandeism, deism, and the teachings of the Baha'i faith. That's the universal. Unitarian Universalist. That's not what we're talking about, okay? Good, got that clear. We're talking about a belief that goes back nearly to the beginning of the Christian age. None of these ideas suggested that you could live however you want and die and all of a sudden end up in heaven because God just loves you that much that you don't have to worry about anything. That's not what Universalism suggested. And to dissect the methods used to arrive at some of the universalist conclusions is way beyond the scope of what we're doing and have time to do, but you can study it. But there is this word, I want you to repeat it after me. Apokatastasis. Apokatastasis. What is that? That is restoration to the original condition. That is the underlying theological basis of the idea of universalism, apokatastasis. The majority of human beings go to hell, but hell is purgatorial. Hell Eventually, after enough time, the damned will convert in hell, join the saints in heaven. Most advocates of this doctrine uh, argue that all evil will cease to exist one day. And that even potentially Satan himself could be restored in the deepest fires of hell. There's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of thought into this. Now, as people begin to shake their heads and say, that is absolutely and utterly ridiculous, I want to suggest or at least remind you that this is not born out of a vacuum. Okay? Think back to our discussion. It's been a long time and a lot of things have been said since, but we looked at the schools of Hillel and Shammai and Jewish thought and post-mortem reward and punishment. Hillel and Shammai predating Yeshua, the two most 
influential schools of Jewish thought during Yeshua's formative and preaching years and beyond, Hillel and Shammai, both of whom taught on some level that the fires of Gehenna would be a place of punishment for a finite term. It's confusing. There's a lot I'm saying, but just we'll get through this part. Shammai, the harsher of the two, taught that the number of souls saved would be very, very low, actually. Not many people would merit heaven, according to Shammai, who was kind of a, he wasn't the nicest guy. You can read rabbinic literature. He had some pretty harsh attitudes. But he said that the in-between, those neither wholly righteous or wholly wicked, that the in-between group would be purified in the flames and then restored to mercy in paradise. This is Shammai. So on some limited scale, there's this idea in Jewish thought predating the church of a purgatorial refinement occurring for souls in Gehenna. Hillel, who was the nicer of the two, seemingly possessed a better opinion of God's mercy. He believed that many would be saved, but he also saw Gehenna as a place of final punishment. And so there's this, a lot of swirling around. But my point, and listen to this, there's a lengthy discussion in the Talmud where some, some suggest that the death of the souls of the righteous go immediately into paradise. The wicked go immediately um, into uh, Gehenna. But they're cast back and forth between the slings of destructive angels until their sins are purified, at which point in time then they are renewed. This is Jewish thought on universal restoration. So you imagine it would be, anyone ever seen the game Highlight? I know Irvin has growing up in Miami. You know that sling where they throw the ball like a thousand miles an hour? That's the visual image of the souls of the wicked between two angels playing Highlight. <clears throat> and then, of course, the later theology of Akiva, which became the dominant theology in rabbinic thought, that no one could spend more than 12 months in Gehenna, that everyone came out. Now, of course, they always had to make room for some type of idolaters and incest committers and things like that. Those people didn't get out. But on the, on the whole... Almost everybody came and went in Gehenna. And even today, in orthodox and more mystical or esoteric expressions of Judaism, you still have this concept of soul washing, that we all go, get cleaned up, and enter in. So Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and St. Isaac of Nineveh, they didn't necessarily come up with this stuff. But... Even in the Universalist Church Fathers, then, we see this, maybe a little hint of Jewish Pharisaic theology, but the hits keep coming here. In purgatory, who knows purgatory? Who knows where purgatory came from? Well, this is where purgatory came from, but there's a particular, what's that? The divine comedy. <laughs> Dante, Dante, yes. But, but purgatory, listen, listen to this quote. Our souls demand purgatory. 
Would it not break the heart if God said to us, it is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we're charitable here and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into joy. The pillar of the church who said that believes, yes, that would be a tragedy for us to enter into the very presence of God with unrighteousness still upon us. You know who that theologian, he's not a theologian, he's a great thinker. You know who said that? The author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who was not a universalist, but we will talk next week about what he was. C.S. Lewis, that our souls are in need of cleansing before entrance into God's presence. Even the saved... And it's not suffering, it's cleansing, and you'll like it. Here's what he continues with. I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has, done me in the, that has been done me in this life has involved it. But I don't think suffering is the purpose of the purgation. The treatment given will be one required, whether it hurts little or much. That's C.S. Lewis on purgatory. Now, all of those things, I just threw like 25 fastballs at you in five minutes about different schools of thinking. They seem sort of disconnected. They're not. Gregory of Nyssa, I mean, all of this, this, this prevalent throughout history in various forms, even though Lewis and others, you know, don't necessarily go all the way back to universalism. The premise is that God loves his people completely and totally. From like scriptures like Ezekiel 18, where it says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And for the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. But... Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter. That is a staple of universal thought. Repent. Repentance is part of it, that this purgation, even this, this punishment for those in between would lead them to repentance. Why is that? Because God himself defines himself as a refining fire. That God would use the fire to transform. Now, it's interesting also to note, as we're talking history, that Augustine, the foundation for eternal conscious punishment and how you got it today is from Augustine, ultimately. He started off, as I said, with a belief in apocatastasy. Say it again so you don't forget it. There you go. He started off, he later completely changed that story, but he even later made room for certain sinners who, though Christians at heart had been defiled and were still kind of dirty from their sins, they were tangled up still in their earthly sins, so they would be cleansed by purgatorial fire and finally saved. Augustine. 
Now, here's the answer for where we got purgatory. The 6th century, Gregory the Great, working off of Augustinian theology, took that idea and developed the full concept of purgatory. Okay? Martin Luther. Martin Luther. At first, fine with purgatory. Other than the Catholic abuses of buying your way out of purgatory and buying other people's way out, which were called indulgences. And you can read about the Protestant Reformation and what was going on there. But first he was fine. However, he developed, developed from Scripture something that became the foundation of Protestant faith, which is justification by faith. A, a, reform, a, a reformation type of theology, of course, drawn from the scriptures in, in their way. But if, it's, if justification by faith was to be the thing, we couldn't have that purgatory hanging around. So Luther got rid of purgatory too. But do you see my point? There's a lot of people who thought and think along these lines. So before we dismiss it and say, abs ridiculous, there are a lot of minds greater than mine and possibly yours who've thought through a lot of these things. The fires refine. That's the basis. There's a distinction between purgatory, the standard connotation, and this, and this universal restoration. But the, uh, the underlying idea is that the fire refines. God is still doing something, even after death, that brings the believer closer, or prepares for entrance, or ultimately saves, ultimately lets everyone get into heaven. Is there any truth to that? You're probably sick of me saying this, but I don't know. My official Hebrew teacher is in the room, so when I speak Hebrew, I have to run it by her. Shabbat Shalom, Marav. I don't know. I've asked myself some questions, and you know what? I'll just be, I'll just be open. I'll just be open with you about some of the thoughts that go through my head. Irvin and Rachel and I were talking before services about a messianic age and how sort of strange a messianic age is thrown into the midst of things a thousand years. And I asked myself as I'm thinking the weird thoughts that I think, why is there a thousand year hiatus between the resurrection of the righteous and the universal resurrection? Why is that? Why is there a thousand years? Why not just cut to the chase? Why in the world do we have to put Satan in chains for a thousand years and have stuff going on up here? Why do we need to have Messianic Jerusalem with Messiah ruling on earth? Why don't we just get to the really good part, the heaven, the world to come part? Is it solely for this extended period of punishment before the wicked are annihilated? Is that why God made a thousand years so that everyone could make sure they really got theirs for a thousand years and then resurrect them and then throw them into the lake of fire and said, see? 
Or is it possibly a time period where this refinement that was believed by so many in the first centuries of the church, that this thousand year period for those in and down there could be both a punishment and a purgation? And the second Peter text echoes in my mind as I think these weird thoughts and let my mind run that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repent. Repentance, strange, is all I can say. I'm not telling you that that's what I believe. I'm telling you that's what I think about. Before I reject all things out of hand. And that at the final resurrection, those who in some way have been separated from Messiah over a thousand years have been given insight into the reality of life under his rule. They have seen something and somehow been refined in the fires of hell. That was my Jonathan Edwards imitation. But he sure wasn't talking about that. I don't know. I don't know. My point is to say this. Many brilliant biblical scholars before us have struggled through some ideas and have made room for ideas that are a long way from traditional thought on final fates. We have seen how some of the traditional thoughts of eternal conscious torment have developed, and they're not right. They're, they're very questionable. But there is a problem. To say, when you read the Bible, to say that all the world is going to be saved is a very big pill to swallow. It really is. And, and again, I love to go to gotquestions.org. It's, it's the ultimate Christian theology website. And there's a lot of different input and sources there. And so you can get a pretty wide perspective. But, but they say on, at gotquestions.org, I'm talking about the problem now. Apocatastasis was taught by Gregory of Nyssa, Clement of Alexandria in origin, but it is not a doctrine derived from a pure study of Scripture. Holding such a position requires mental gymnastics and blatant disregard for the plethora of passages that teach otherwise. Well, I, I sort of agree with that. However, it takes a whole heck of a lot of mental gymnastics to put people consciously dying forever over for a trillion vagintillion years in burning fire of hell. That's also mental gymnastics. So we have to be careful about getting off the balance beam too quick. These guys, Origen, Clement, they were writing in Greek which is the language of the New Testament, very, very close to the New Testament. Do you know that Augustine hated the Greek language? That he never really learned it and didn't want to have anything to do with it? These guys were writing in the language. But here's the thing. <clears throat> it's not just necessarily easy to dismiss something as mental gymnastics. God could do things we don't understand. But let's consider what we've learned so far. Jewish thought. Yeshua, apostolic thought, it does very, very, very clearly seem to suggest that there is death, that there is a ceasing of life, a termination of your life if you are not on the right side. There is an end versus eternal life. There is burning up. There is consumption. There is destruction. And Hillel and Shammai and Yeshua and Paul and Peter and all others seem to indicate that this is the fact of the matter. So I have to believe, as we concluded last week's message, that God does give us a choice. 
He gives us a choice, and it would seem from the way I read and determine that some will make the wrong one and will choose their fate as one of destruction. So does that mean, though, that that what we're talking about here is this mental, heretical teaching I'm giving you, polluting your mind, confusing you, driving off the, the path of the righteous disciple? No. We're talking about history again. We're talking about historical development in, in religion. But I am, I am going to have some considerations for us to ponder. Can we include any of these thoughts in our worldview? Most people would say, you know what they'd say, H-E double hockey stick, no. (laughs) No, this is heresy. Each of these other viewpoints, traditionalists, conditionalists, conditionalists, listen, they have something to offer. And so here's, here's the idea that though we may not have to go all in for the idea of universalist, universal restoration... I want to be careful to not lose something in there that God might be revealing to us. I believe, me, me, I believe in the resurrection of the righteous at the coming of the Messiah. I believe in the universal resurrection of all who've ever lived at the end of the Messianic age. I believe, as Paul says, that we will all stand for judgment. All of us will stand for judgment. For compensation for deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. That's kind of a scary verse, a little bit. When you ponder the life you've lived to this point, good thing is, God willing, you have more life to live. We'll come back to that, though. But we will stand for judgment. I believe that the eternalists who suggest that the fires of hell are real, that they are painful, that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth as one comes to terms with the full weight of the cost of their choice, I believe that will happen, but I believe it will end I believe there will be a termination of that punishment and that the annihilationist is correct to assume that God can do whatever God wants to do with a soul and he can destroy it and terminate it from existence. And that does mean punishment. If you are separated from God forever and never get a chance to enjoy the world to come, you have been punished. And that punishment will last forever. That's different than being eternally punished in the active sense. And that makes room for two groups right there. The righteous and the wicked. And that's the choice. The righteous and the wicked. But those terms... They remain challenging to me. The definition, the extension of those terms is the righteous believe in Jesus. The wicked do not believe in Jesus. That's the dichotomy. But you remember those high holiday books that we talked about? And the books we talked about in Revelation 
where it says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. It says the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. It goes on to say they were judged later, the ones from death and Hades, each of them according to their deeds. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now listen to this. Remember the high holiday books? The book of life. The book of death. And the book of in-between. And Yom Kippur is a very real, tangible picture of the final judgment. And this text, Sam Storms, which is a, he's a very well-known the, uh, uh, Calvinist evangelist, He says, the focus here in this Revelation text is on the judgment of all the unbelieving from every age of human history. And you can rest assured that no one will be exonerated or found innocent. The evil, selfish, sensual, godless lifestyle of unbelieving mankind will stand as witnesses against them. The only hope for acquittal is the blood of Jesus Christ, which they have spurned and rejected throughout their lives on earth. He's saying... There are the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus is it. You either believed in Jesus or you didn't believe in Jesus and you're going to hell forever if you didn't. And yet, Revelation says something different. It talks about people being judged according to their deeds. And that's really confusing if you have this dualistic theology that has dominated 1900 years, really, of thinking. There is a book that is in between the righteous and the wicked. And... I've been, I've been promising you that I would be extremely controversial. I've been promising you that. And now, finally, as I end this message, I'll lay the groundwork for the great controversy next week. We have to talk about deeds, and we have to talk about that book of the in-between. Because what is happening in Revelation is very strange if you really think about it. Yeshua is sitting on the judgment seat. He is the judge. And yet somehow, even in this final judgment, it says if their names are not found in the book of life. The righteous have already been resurrected and judged according to their deeds. The wicked have already been thrown into the lake of fire. And yet, there's a judgment where apparently some of these names will be found written in the book of life. And this brings us to the in-betweeners. And it is the discussion that is in my personal experience, 
This is the number one objection to Christianity across every single circle of people. I can't believe in a God who would condemn a good person to eternal hell for not believing in Jesus. What about the guy in the jungle who's never heard of Jesus? What about the Jewish people who love God but don't confess Jesus? Or what about the peaceful Buddhist who served and worked God? How did it work with God in some way? How does all that work with the God of justice and mercy and the books and Jesus the judge? How does it work? And it's a great, great hindrance to many, many people coming to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Messiah Yeshua. So we need to talk about deeds. And we'll do that next week. Shabbat Shalom.